Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are our shepherd. We thank You that You feed us from Your Word. We thank You that the Lord Jesus Himself has promised to be with us, to teach us, to preach to us, to teach us that He knows the secrets of our hearts, that He loves us and cares for us, that He rejoices in us. We remember how He said that He had given His Word, that His joy might be in us, and that our joy might be full. And we pray as we exalt in Your presence today, in the blessing of this music and these words, and our singing and praying and reading, we pray that You would continue to move among us through the pews in this room and give to us each gifts from Your Word, unwrapped by Your Holy Spirit, with our names and circumstances on them, and with a view to the blessing of us as Your people and as the family of Jesus Christ. So hear us and help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now, our Scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and chapter 4, verse 1, and you'll find this on the Pew Bible, page 980, and if you're using one of the children's Bibles, you will find it there on page 1272. And as you're turning there, let me first of all thank you all, and especially the uh, 225 plus 2 committee, and Dr. Thomas, to whom I said earlier on in the week he should really be preaching this sermon today, but uh, you don't argue with a native Welsh speaker. <laughs> and uh, here I am, and thrilled to be with you. We have been away from you longer than we were with you but the bonds remain as strong as ever, and the, de the delight, overwhelming delight of seeing you and meeting new ones and seeing the advance of the congregation under Dr. Thomas's ministry and the other pastors has been thrilling uh, to me. Although, as I noticed in the earlier service, uh, some of you have advanced by sitting in exactly the same place you were sitting in many years ago. Well, let us hear God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all 
with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You will see from the bulletin that the title of the sermon is FPC Then and FPC Now. And for any who may be challenged by abbreviations, FPC is First Presbyterian Church then, and FPC is First Presbyterian Church now. But these are two different churches. The first of them is First Presbyterian Church in Philippi. The second is First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. And for those of you who are shaky on Presbyterianism and doubt the veracity of that statement, uh, I can remind you, I think, that this is the only letter Paul writes that makes it absolutely clear that this particular congregation was a full-blooded Presbyterian congregation with overseers and deacons. But it was obviously not only a well-formed congregation. It was clearly a congregation with which Paul had least trouble and for which he possibly had the greatest affection. And what I want us to try and do today is to look at this First Presbyterian Church in Philippi through the eyes of the Apostle Paul as their planter and pastor, and to see in that mirror reflections of the story of our church, the blessings of our church, that might cause us all, those of us who have been pastors, and I reckon probably ten will be here in the building during the course of the day who have preached from this pulpit and pastored this congregation, so that pastors and people together might be able to say about our church here, this is my joy and my crown. And I want us to try and do that in several different ways, noting that as he often does in his letters, Paul throws out hints in his opening thanksgiving of where he is going to go in the rest of the letter. And the words in verses 1 through 11 in many ways provide us with a summary as he opens his heart to them, a summary of all for which he is thankful in the story of the church. And the first thing I think is this, that he is thankful for the work of God from the very first day of their story. He rejoices in verse 4. In every prayer, he prays with joy because of their partnership in the gospel, their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. 
And he goes on to say, he is sure that God will bring to completion the work which he began among them. We sometimes sing Top Ladies' hymn and apply it personally. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. But here Paul sees this corporately, that God did a work among these people. They shared with him in the gospel from the beginning, and their story is rooted in the divine workmanship. If you were present on Wednesday night, you'll remember Dr. Godfrey reflecting on those early years and then through the history of our church here. The evidences, the clear evidences that this has been a place which God began and in which God's work has continued. You know, I don't know that everyone who sits in church realizes the simple principle of physics, that if you can see the preacher, the preacher can see you. (laughs) And so often when you are preaching, you notice perhaps a husband leaning over to a wife or a wife leaning over to a husband and whispering something. And you realize something in the message has captured their imagination, or at least you hope that's what it is. They, they remember something from their own lives that, that fits in with what has been said. And I can never read Philippians without imagining the, the little house church, perhaps in Lydia's home, and thinking of three people in that congregation hearing these words about the work which God began on the first day of the church's history. And the businesswoman, Lydia, perhaps glancing over to that slave girl, the anonymous slave girl, who was delivered from the oppression of wicked men and from the power of demons in the name of Jesus Christ. And then the jailer who had been so dramatically converted to Christ. And perhaps just raising their eyebrows or a little smile reflecting their common memory that they were there when God began the good work. And the wonderful thing about it was that God's good work was so diverse in their lives, as it is in our lives. For some, like Lydia, the Lord has opened our hearts, and we have believed in the Lord Jesus almost without realizing that the great transition has taken place. For others of us, we have come from lives that have been enmeshed in struggle, in addiction. And for others, there has been perhaps just one dramatic moment in which God has broken through, and His ways with us have been so beautifully diverse, one way different from, but no less divine than the other. And the great culmination is that we have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have been part of the work that God in His goodness has begun. You know, I've been reflecting on the fact that the work that God began among these people in Philippi actually began in the Apostle Paul. 
You remember in Acts 16 the narrative of his missionary journey where his own thinking is that we should, we should press on here and he finds a, a, a road jam in his way and then he, he thinks it must mean it will be somewhere else and the Spirit forbids them. And then he has the vision in the night of the man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And he arrives here in Philippi and God's work begins. But it had begun fascinatingly first, not just in the people who were pastored, but in the man who would evangelize and pastor them. And this is true not only for you, it, it is true for those who have been brought here to be preachers and pastors. It may be personal for a moment. I don't think in all the years I was here, I ever remembered the fact that in 1998, in my study in the seminary, I received a phone call from somebody in this church saying, I'm part of the search committee for the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. And I said, well, you will need to look elsewhere for a pastor. Because I'd made a major decision on which I could not turn back. And then years later, another phone call in another office, in another seminary. I'm the chair of the search committee for the senior minister of First Presbyterian Church. We are coming to see you, and we're not taking no for an answer. <laughs> and mercifully, when I burst out laughing, he burst out laughing too. And I said, I can't come. He said, that doesn't matter. We're coming to see you. And as they say, the rest is history. Fast forward a number of years, the search committee is looking for another minister. They speak to Derek Thomas. Derek says, I've signed my contract for the seminary. I can't come. They go through a hundred ministers searching. And then the chair of the search committee has the wisdom to know that the contract will not yet be signed. And Derek and Rosemary come. And I've never forgotten, because I was in the last hour of the meeting together, I've never forgotten watching them walk out of the door, out of the church, to drive up to Charlotte for the flight back to Jackson in Mississippi, and thinking to myself, I don't think there's anyone in this room who believes they will see them again unless I invite him back to preach. I went back into my office. An hour or so later, text on my cell phone, I can't believe it, but I think we're coming. So it's not just among the people of God in general, because we are bound together in one and the same bundle of life. We rejoice with unspeakable joy that God has been in this work from the very beginning, and that that ultimately, if there is a secret, is part of the secret, not only to First Presbyterian Church in Philippi, but to First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. There's a second thing that runs through these opening verses that I'm sure you've noticed, and that is that this church was not only grounded in God from the first day, but it was full of Christ every day. Of course, in Philippians, 
We think of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, the passage you remember about Christ being in the form of God, not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, emptying Himself, not emptying Himself of His deity, as I'm sure you are constantly reminded, but emptying Himself the way your mother emptied herself into you and yet remained full, or your father emptied himself into you and yet remained full as your father. But what is really striking is the number of times in these opening 11 verses that Paul keeps coming back to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first 11 verses, he does it, I think, seven times. And then in the verses that follow, before we get to the great section in chapter 2, verse 5, he speaks about the Lord Jesus another 14 times. One of the great old commentators, a man called Bengal, said the theme of Philippians is Gaudio Gaudete. I rejoice, therefore you should rejoice. But if that's true, it's only because this letter is not only joyful, it is first and foremost Christful. And that's it, isn't it? That when we are full of Christ, God's work among us will continue. His amazing love, of which He speaks in chapter 2 here, that He has given Himself for us, and by His grace, drawn us to Himself. There should always be one question in a sermon, I think, personal question. And it's about this. Dr. Godfrey, who is one of my longest standing American friends, reads very improving literature. I watch Hercule Poirot, the Agatha Christie detective, on DVDs. And there is one scene in the Agatha Christie novel, The Clocks, where this little Belgian detective is standing with his sidekick, who is almost no brain, and the typical English police inspector, who doesn't know his right hand from his left hand, and they are looking down at a corpse. And Hercule Poirot says in his Belgian accent, it is not so important who he is, but who he is. You get it? <laughs> they didn't either. <laughs> but what he was saying was this. It's not just a matter of his identity that is important here. It's a matter of his relationship that's important here. And that's it, isn't it? It is wonderful, wonderful to be in a church where you, you hear the thunder of the saying of the Apostles' Creed. What a thing that is. What a thing that is. But far more wonderful to know Him, to trust Him. And I wonder if that has dawned on you. You've been coming, perhaps coming as an outsider. You're beginning to get the creed, and now you're beginning to see that the creed is about a person and you're being drawn to Him. And you're surrounded by people, as in the church at Philippi, surrounded by people 
who have been drawn to Him in quiet ways, in dramatic ways, in unexpected ways, in ways they never wanted, and you're being drawn to. And you begin to see that if there is a secret, the secret is not only that God is working among us, but that Christ is central to us. And then I want you to notice a third thing, which I think is very beautiful. It is that this church's life was enhanced by wonderful illustrations and examples of grace. The three people I've mentioned, Lydia, that dear girl, the Philippian jailer, and then he goes on to mention others. He introduces the letter by saying, this is coming to you from Paul and Timothy. And that's one of the sweetest things because after having described the Lord Jesus Christ and encouraging them to work the grace of Christ into their congregational life, he immediately points to Timothy as though Timothy were an illustration of what Jesus Christ is like. And this to me is so fascinating because Timothy, by nature, was not one of the big people, not one of the powerful, overwhelming, confident people. All we know from the New Testament gives us the impression that the reverse was true. He had some, he had some tummy problems. He appears to have had a certain timidity. He had a, he had a slightly awkward family background. And when Paul sends him to Corinth, he writes to the Corinthians and says, when Timothy comes among you, I, mean, I can hardly imagine writing it to, to this bunch of Corinthians. He says, when Timothy comes among you, make sure, make absolutely sure that you put him at his ease. I've always wanted to write that to a search committee and wait for the letter that comes back saying, we're looking for someone who will put us at our ease. I thank God for your such love for your pastors that you, you want to put them at their best Christian ease so that they may do the Lord's work among you. But this is, this is the man about whom Paul says, I don't know anyone like him. And he's, he's pointing them to Timothy and saying, don't, don't you see how Jesus-like Timothy has been? And that's the beauty of, of our church family life, isn't it? Um, that you see this, you hear this in the Word, and one of the benedictions of preaching in a fellowship like this is that outsiders can hear the truth in the Word and then turn around and see the truth in the lives of people, and, and not the people who may be big in what they do. And you know, friends, your, your pastors have eyes and ears, and they watch and they listen. They do. They know you. I don't know whether this is good news to you or bad news to you. They know you far better, far, far better than you would ever imagine because they hear things about you. They see things about you. They watch. They put things together. 
They see those who show Christ-likeness in all kinds of subtle and quiet ways. I've never forgotten arriving at a home where there had been a, a bereavement that day, and I, I parked my car at the front of the house, and out the corner of my eye, I saw someone else in the congregation driving up, and they got out of the car and they saw me. They didn't know I saw them. They probably don't even know who I'm talking about here. And I saw this person do a run, a kind of disguised run round the back of the house and into the back of the house. But I saw they were carrying food. And I saw that they didn't want their left hand, me, to know what their right hand was doing. But it was a, what I saw was like one of these child's toys where you see one thing one moment and you see something else a different moment. The beauty of Jesus. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wondrous compassion and purity. O thou Savior divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. And we're surrounded by it. You know, if you're a younger person, sit down beside an older person in the church sometime and just say, tell me your story. Old people love to begin sentences, I remember. <laughs> and you begin to hear stories of the beauty of Jesus in their lives and also in the lives of others. As all kinds of different stones to change the metaphor to the one Peter uses are built together into the glory of the Lord's house in this place, the multifaceted, multi-talented, multi-colored, multi-gifted grace of God among us, of which the New Testament so wonderfully speaks. And then there's this fourth thing to notice. So, there's the work of God in the church from the beginning. There's the centrality of Christ in the church every day. There are models of grace around us. And of course, there is a calling to be faithful and to progress into the future. We'd love to have Paul as our pastor, and then if he came as our pastor, we would find he was constantly challenging us to work out our salvation not work for it, but to work it out. And I think possibly he's speaking there not just about our individual lives, but of working it out into the life of the congregation. And so he prays in verse 9 that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And the reason this is so important, he will explain in a verse or two following, is because the Philippians live in a dark world where they are a light shining, holding out the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were there yesterday afternoon to hear the mayor 
he made a little slip of the tongue when he described and named the church. He began to call it first citizens. And then uh, he graciously corrected it with good humor to First Presbyterian Church, but I couldn't help thinking there was a divinity shaping that little mistake, that here in our congregation there would be Christians who shine as citizens. As Paul says to the Philippians, those whose citizenship is in heaven but who live out that heavenly citizenship here in Colombia, so that people see and hear the truth and atmosphere of the gospel, because they do see us, and they do talk about us. I was reflecting partly, I don't know, with a sense of guilt on an illustration I used many years ago of connecting a flight in Charlotte Airport, sitting on a bench and realizing there were two hotshot lawyers sitting back to back with me, and since I couldn't avoid hearing what they were saying, I realized they were talking about a lawyer in this church. And my imagination ran away with me for a moment because I remember saying, I'm not going to tell you who it was but this is the last day I ever have any trouble with any lawyer in this congregation. (laughs) But the real point was this. They were talking about him, and they saw him and took notice. And people do. They don't understand it. They may even hate it, but they do take notice if we have been with Jesus. And that's what Paul is teaching these Philippians so beautifully, isn't it? That in their fellowship, in their witness together, the Lord Jesus should be made known, not least in our worship. Remember how Paul says, the really great thing is if outsiders come in, and he says, if all are prophesying, And there are occasions in the Bible where prophesying actually refers to singing. It's not foretelling the future, it's foretelling the glories of God. So that as a lady said to me after a funeral service here with total astonishment, she said to me, I didn't realize it would be a worship service. And she didn't have the categories, I don't think, to explain what it was she had experienced, but what she had experienced was the Lord's people, even in their grief, sensing the Lord's presence and knowing that He was with them, knowing that He was their shepherd, that He would see them through right to the very end. And that's the privilege of life in the family of Jesus Christ, the privilege of life here. And as Paul writes to them, he says, you know, you are my crown and my joy. He expected, as he says in Second Timothy, that he would receive a crown of righteousness. But here, it's almost as though he is saying, when I receive that crown of righteousness, 
I really trust and believe there will be a little model of a businesswoman, perhaps a little model of a slave girl growing up and released by the grace of Jesus Christ, a little model of a Roman civil servant who was a converted jailer. And I cannot but believe that everyone who has ever ministered in this congregation hopes that when there is a crown at the end of their ministry and life, on that crown there'll be a little pink church, and that whoever is the recording angel in glory will frequently be sending memos to the crown-making department in heaven saying, you need to up the production of the crowns with the little pink church because they're coming in droves to the kingdom of glory. The Lord has brought us safe thus far the Lord will lead us home. And this is a day of rejoicing. And we do not well unless we share that rejoicing with the city of Columbia. May God give you grace to do that. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us today. We thank you as Moses must have thanked you for Bezalel and Oholiab and the gifts that they were given as the tabernacle was built. We thank you for the work of your Spirit in this beautiful anthem that is now ours forever and in the gifts that you have given to our congregation. For everyone in whom we have seen a reflection of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks. We pray that from this pulpit your word will always be preached with joy and grace and power, that among us you will do your work of salvation and sanctification, and that in this city we may shine as a light in a dark place and remain ever faithful until our Lord Jesus either comes to take us home or comes finally to bring in the kingdom of glory. And so we pray you will receive our thanks and praise and life's devotion today because we come to you in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.